Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. And welcome back from the bush. Thank you. All last week, uh, Kobus was out with the uh, the gazelles and the uh, and what's left of, uh, of of the rhino population, I imagine, in. Uh, <laughs> In South Africa, on a riding retreat, and so uh, we were uh, so we're happy to have you back in Johannesburg, and we're also very very happy to have back Dr. Dauda Sise, who's a research fellow at Stellenbosch University in Cape Town, uh, Cobus. That's your your former stomping grounds there, and uh, Dauda joins us not from uh, from Cape Town, but all the way up north in Uppsala, Sweden, where he's doing uh, a three month stint at the Nordic African Institute. Welcome back to the show, Dauda. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Scobus, for having me on the we're, show today. We're really excited, in part because Dowd has done a lot of writing over the past six months on the China-Africa economic relationship. And as a regular listener of uh, regular listeners of the show will know, we actually haven't spent that much time on economics uh, of late, uh, focusing a lot on ivory, politics, diplomacy, all these different topics. So Dauda is here to really kind of give us a pulse check. And in particular, it comes at a very interesting time in the Sino-African relationship. And, and three news stories over the past two or three weeks caught my attention, which will kind of give a context to what we're going to talk about with Dauda. Uh, first, Marsk Shipping Lines, uh, Marsk Lines, which is the Danish uh, shipping conglomerate, and they are just massive. They are now going to be building out of a billion dollars of port facilities in Africa, in part to handle the trade between China and Africa. They're going to be deploying Chinese-speaking personnel onto the African continent in order to handle that trade, and they are really expecting an uptick in, in trade. So as we're seeing the economic relationship deepen, the shipping lines are readying themselves uh, for business. Then Ethiopian Air Airlines just about two weeks ago launched its new uh, direct service between Addis Ababa and Shanghai, now having 28 direct flights between Ethiopia and China, which is uh, a leader on the continent. And finally, the the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. There was an article that caught our attention. We posted it up on our Facebook page. Uh, The JSE, not very South African at all. And in part, it's saying that the JSE now, more and more of the the future of the index is determined by companies that have their investments in places like China. you got to think of companies like Naspers, which has a very big investment in the Chinese internet company Tencent. So all of that together... We start to see this real tightening of the economic relationship. And I guess, Dauda, I wanted to come to you when is there, can we read into these news stories? Uh, what the assumption that I am making is that over the past, say, 12 to 24 months, we, we see no slowdown in the economic integration, both public and private, between China and Africa, despite the fact that the Chinese economy has had some problems, despite the fact that the economic recovery in the West is still uncertain at best, but yet the relationship between China and Africa continues to grow. Is that a fair assessment to make? Right. Uh, Eric, as you mentioned, uh, I think the relationship between China and Africa, uh, mostly based on economic cooperation and uh, focusing on trade and investment, is is not changing. Uh, I, f- I think it's becoming more and more of an interest uh, to both sides. Uh, and what you can see now is that uh, there is there is more and more interest in the services sector. For instance, you did mention about uh, Maersk Land trying to boost its presence into the African market uh, and from there uh, contributing to strengthen the trade relationship between, between China and Africa. That's one thing. And, uh, and the other thing is about uh, Ethiopian Airlines, for instance, having 
having uh, established a direct flight between Addis Ababa and Shanghai, uh, which which adds to the number of of uh, of lines that Ethiopian Airlines had before in China, because Ethiopian Airlines flies to Guangzhou and Beijing regularly, and even Hangzhou, I think, uh, once a week or even sometimes more. Uh, another thing is. Uh, the the investments uh, by South African companies in China to be registered at the GSE. Uh, I mean, South Africa is is a is a is a big player uh, in terms of having its enterprises uh, in the Chinese market, and that 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 goes from let's say uh, the financial sector and also other other services sector. Uh, let's say the IT sector, for instance, or even uh, the insurance sector. So uh, what we can see so far in 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 the recent development of China Africa economic cooperation uh, is uh, more and more sectors now being being on board uh, and interesting not only the, the public sector in Africa but also the private sector and Chinese are also kind of moving from the uh, resources sector if you can if you can say so because their presence was 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 more on the infrastructure. Uh, building sector and the resources sector, both uh, sometimes linked because uh, the the investment in resources come along with uh, investments in the infrastructure development sector. Um, Dada, picking up on that point, um, in one of your papers, you recently made the point that there is um, a, a certain shift to be seen um, in Chinese investment um, from be it being um, very very dominated by by um, state-owned enterprises towards um, towards more um, private enterprises. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, the thing is that, uh, you know, Chinese investments, when one looks at the Chinese presence in Africa, it's more on the public side. Uh, let's say investment driven by uh, state-owned enterprises. Uh, but more and more, the uh, domestic uh, political economic situation in China does not uh, favor private companies' uh, activities uh, in, in terms of, in terms of uh, giving them, for instance, more credits to more credits or loans to develop their activities or invest in other sectors in China. So it becomes more and more competitive for them. And uh, what they do basically is they look for markets overseas. And Africa is uh, one of the places uh, which fall under the agenda because of uh, probably cheaper cheaper uh, cost of labor, cheaper cost of production. But again, uh, Africa represents, uh, I mean, a huge market uh, in terms of uh, in terms of Chinese investments. Uh, but beside that, we do have interest in uh, resources. Not only the, uh, I mean, not only the natural resources that would enable them to produce the manufacturing goods that they want, but also uh, skilled people uh, who can work with them. You know, when we when we talk about the the trade relationship, so often it's framed in the context of. Uh, this neo-colonial relationship. This was brought up by Sanusi Lumido in Nigeria, uh, Jacob Zuma, in uh, the, your president in South Africa. He brought up the issue that it, he said it's, quote, unsustainable that uh, South Africa in particular, but the continent as a whole, ships raw materials to ch- China and then finished goods are sent back. Now, when I look at the trade figures, I see an increasingly uh, an increasing growing shift towards services, towards e- machinery, uh, and less dependence on those raw materials. Let's exclude oil from that for now, just because oil is such a big part of it. 
Um, uh, but can you give us a sense of how the trade balances are shaping out? What uh, you know? What is Jacob Zuma correct? Is it unsustainable? Uh, and is it only based on raw materials and finished goods coming back? Right. Uh, talking about the unsustainable trade between China and Africa, one should look at the uh, the composition of trade. If people talk about uh, you know uh, unsustainability, it's it's more related to the composition of uh, of trade. Uh, mainly, it's uh, it's uh, resources uh, going to China and manufacturing goods coming to uh, Africa. And of course, that, that varies from one country to another. Some countries have a trade surplus with China. And when we look at the countries that have trade surplus with China, they are, they are mainly those uh, resource-rich countries. Uh, again, if, if you look at a country which probably doesn't have, doesn't have uh, enough resources or at least uh, doesn't have a resource to offer to China, uh, more often... The trade relationship is is, is very unbalanced, and such country faces uh, trade deficit. I was wondering, just you know, kind of to take it back to to the role of of, um, of Chinese small and medium medium enterprises um, and and the increasing role in Africa. You mentioned that that it's becoming very tough for them um, in in China and that competing in China is, is sometimes very difficult and that they also have, have less access to to uh, government financing. As a very basic question, why do they actually have less, less, less access to financing? Like, isn't, isn't um, part of, of the, the Chinese, uh, you know, kind of economic agenda to, to also grow all of these um, businesses on different levels? Or are they really only interested in, in growing mega conglomerates and corporations? Right, there is uh, there is a strategic interest from the Chinese government, uh, both central and provincial government, to to be closer to the uh, state-owned enterprises, uh, because China has made it an agenda, uh, not only from the twelve five-year plan, uh, uh, going from twenty eleven to twenty sixteen, uh, to make its companies more competitive, uh, more global. Uh, to penetrate overseas market in terms of uh, gaining uh, positive reputation, but also uh, kind of big image in in the world global uh, system or world global uh, trade and uh, yeah. So uh, less and less uh, the private companies are not are not of an interest to I mean to the Chinese uh, I mean uh, yeah to the Chinese government. So therefore, uh, being a private, you kind of uh, navigate by you know uh, by yourself to to find ways uh, and other opportunities to to make your business go and grow. You know, talking about the shift between the private and the public companies that Cobus raised, this idea that private investment in in from China in Africa. Uh, is growing. It may not be quite on the scale that we're seeing with the public investment or the the, the state investment, uh, but it's growing very quickly. What effect do you think that will have on the overall economic relationship between the two, in part because when an SOE invests in China, there's an entire political apparatus that's behind it. There's a structure that's behind it. Whereas when a private entity makes an investment, 
it's really it varies quite a bit. And it seems to me that that would yes. have a very different type of relationship as more private investment comes into. And I'm thinking, for example, of you know Huajin, which is an example of the uh, that you referenced, uh, which is the the, lar- the world's largest shoe manufacturing company setting up in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Their interaction with the government in Addis Ababa would probably be very different than that of a state-owned enterprise. Do you think that African stakeholders, you know, on, in the in the commerce and finance ministries, have the sophistication to understand the differences in dealing with a private uh, entity and a public entity? And, and I don't say that in any way to sound condescending, but it's not easy to do. Right. Uh, I I do agree with you, and uh, actually that's one of the challenges that I mentioned on 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 one of the papers that you that you're focusing on here. Uh, it will become more and more of a challenge for different African countries to have Chinese private investments because they are not tied to the Chinese government itself uh, in terms of uh, rule or uh, you know in terms of regulations. So and you don't know, and most of the time, I mean in. In, in several African countries, as you mentioned, it's it's a matter of 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 lack of structure. I mean, political economic uh, structure to be able to to track down or to see uh, efficiently what are different actors on the ground doing. So uh, this is this is the main challenge, and I think countries will have to think about it carefully and uh, trying to find ways to deal with it. Because most of the problems that we have found so far in Chinese investments in Africa. Particularly, uh, the private ones. Are always, I mean, uh, I mean, the problems are, are again brought by by Chinese private actors most of the time. Uh, when we talk about labor, for instance, when we talk about uh, environmental issues, uh, and so forth and so on. So, African countries which which welcome such such investments, and I'm sure that it's all of them because uh, there is more and more of an interest. Uh, to African countries to also develop the private sector, you know, in the in the in the specific uh, economic uh, uh, sphere. Mm-hmm. So, 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 yeah. But that that doesn't mean that they have to they have to say, okay, uh, we'll welcome uh, we'll welcome uh, private Chinese investments without having the right tools and the right structures, the right policies to to be able to to. to you know, to to manage such investments on the ground. You know, Kobus, Dauda brings up a, an interesting point here, and it's one of my kind of biggest frustrations that I have whenever we talk about the, the China-Africa relationship with, you know, people who read the media narratives. And, you know, inevitably it comes up to, well, you know, what happened at the Column Mine in, in Zambia is an example right. of the tensions that hap- that exist between the Chinese and Africans. And, and Kobus, you pointed out in a, in a show that we did a long time ago that the Column Mine is a private entity. Uh, it's also it was as much of a headache for the Chinese embassy in Lusaka than it was for the for the Zambians. And so closing it down eliminated a problem for everybody. And it turns out that as Dauda was saying, a lot of the negative behavior that we see often gets mixed up with the state-owned companies. And so people don't understand the differences between the two. Again, I'm not saying this to defend the state-owned companies, but as Dauda pointed out, there is a big difference between the two. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and obviously the column coal mine was even more complicated in the sense that it also that some of them, some of the the, the heads of the co- the column coal mine were naturalized Australians, like um, right. Ch- Chinese Australians. So you know, it and and obviously Australia never got blamed for any of this. So um, yeah, you know, kind of it's, it's it's a very complicated thing. I think what also complicates the issue between um, private companies and state-owned companies is um, last week when we spoke with uh, the authors from the Rand Corporation. They pointed out that um, one of the problems that American companies face is that they don't have the the natural uh, ability to kind of to package financing and you know uh, uh, financing and infrastructure in the way that Chinese state-owned companies do. In the sense that you know the the state-owned companies have access to Exim, um, Exim Bank um, financing frequently, and then they can also you know kind of they have connections with other companies which can set up, for example, the road or the rail link from the mine to the harbor. You know, in order to to facilitate to to put in all of this infrastructure to make a project run. So, you know, I was wondering, Dada, do you foresee a similar problem with Chinese private companies, you know, that they also don't necessarily come come with financing in hand and they also don't necessarily have these kind of natural links with other Chinese companies, you know, kind of to, to, to set up the infrastructure to make the projects actually operable? Right. Uh, I think there we can see some differences sometimes because uh, let's say if we if we take the infrastructure development sector, for instance, uh, there is more and more outsourcing from the Chinese state-owned companies to the private ones. Uh, more often what we see is you have a Chinese state-owned company that is involved in infrastructure uh, building in Africa, but then outsources uh, the activities through a private company, which, which will be in charge of uh, building the road, for instance. And that's not that's not only that's not only uh, unique to the infrastructure development sector. Uh, I'm sure that in in the IT sector it does happen, and uh, we can see other examples in other in other places as well. Hmm. Every time we talk to Dauda, we you know Kobus, he he makes things more confusing for us, which is really what I what I enjoy. No, no, this is great because it never occurred to me about the outsourcing, and that's what complicates the the, the, the labor question so much is that you may have an SOE that is adhering to every CSR, every labor compliance standard that's set up by I don't know the IMF, the World Bank, you know heaven and Jesus himself. But at the end at the end of the day, they outsource to a third party, African or Chinese. And, you know, the standards go to hell. So um, it makes it complicated, which is what's so fascinating about this topic and and really why we're just so grateful you were able to take some time to join us on the show today. Uh, Dauda is, is really a great person to follow over at Stellenbosch. He's doing a lot on the China economic relationship and, and on trade relationships between uh, between China and Africa. If you head over to the uh, to the just to the Stellenbosch website, you'll see him in the 2013 annual report. Uh, right now, he's up in uh, Uppsala, Sweden, uh, at the Nordic Africa Institute for doing a three month uh, research stint there. And so, we were just so grateful that you had the time to join us today. Uh, Dauda, are you on social media by any chance where people can follow what you're reading and writing? Right, I'm on social media, but I think I will uh, give you the CCS social media access or contacts. So okay. <laughs> we are, yeah, the CCS is on Facebook, and uh, you can find us on uh, Facebook with ccs.stel, stel like uh, Stellenbosch, S-T-E-L-L. Okay, well, that's great. And then, uh, Kobe, yeah, definitely... and then we are on oh. Twitter. We are on Twitter as well. Our Twitter is at CCS underscore stel, stel in capital letters. Okay. 
Uh, Kobus, you're definitely on social media. Where can people find you? You'll see my name on our Facebook page, is facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And I, I comment there. I was a bit scarce this week because I was battling warthogs, you know, kind of to get to the internet. Um, but I'm back. Um, and also, I'm on Twitter at Stadnesk. That's S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E. We now have over 170,000 followers from all over the world on our Facebook page. Once again, as Kobus said, that's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We'd love to have you join the conversation. Uh, tell us what you think, if you like the podcast, if you want to hear specific topics, if you've just published a paper. We've had a number of students join us on the show after they did some research, either a field-based research in Africa or in China, or even just academic and uh, sitting in a library in London or Washington. Uh, if it's just a topic that you're interested in, would love to kind of share what you've learned with the world, uh, post us a note on Facebook. It's happened a number of different times. If you'd like to follow me, you can follow me on Twitter over at eolander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. O-L-A-N-D-E-R. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. We'll be back soon with another edition. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Listening.